It's not your clothes. It's not your music. It's not your favourite colour. It's not your neighbourhood. It's your watch. It's your watch that tells the most about who you are. I don't know if you saw that, but that was an, an ad by Seiko a few years ago. It's your watch that tells the most about who you are. How do you find out what someone is like? Their clothes, their music, their watch. Last week we started off looking at the book of Esther. We saw King Xerxes sack his queen because she wouldn't do what he said. We find out what King Xerxes is like. He ran a beauty contest to find a replacement queen. A girl called Esther won the beauty contest. She's now the new queen of Persia. That was all last week. But even though Esther is one of the main characters in the book, we don't know really what Esther is like. This week Esther will be put to the test and it's when Esther is put to the test, it's when she's in the darkest of situations that we find out what she's really like. This week we get to see Esther's true colours. Now so far in Esther uh, we've seen three main people. We've seen King Xerxes, the wild king. We've seen Esther, the good-looking girl, who's now queen. And we've seen Mordecai kind of behind the scenes telling Esther what to do. This week in chapter 3, we meet a new person. His name is Haman. And Esther 3, we just heard it read, starts with Haman getting a promotion. He appears out of nowhere and he is promoted by King Xerxes to the highest position. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than all the other nobles. Now that might sound, not sound very significant, but there's a lot going on just in that one sentence. Haman, we're told, is the son of Hamadatha the Agagite. What on earth does that mean? What's an Agagite? Does it even matter? Well, you bet it does. Agag was king of a people called the Amalekites. And way back when the Israelites were rescued by Moses through the Red Sea and they came into the desert, it was the Amalekites who attacked them. The poor, defenseless Israelites, mothers, children, men, the Amalekites came and attacked them. And God promised that because of that, he would completely wipe them out. And so in the time of King Saul, God delivered the Amalekites into King Saul's hand to wipe them out. And the king of the Amalekites at that point was a guy called Agag. But King Saul didn't do it. He wanted some of the plunder, and so he kept Agag alive. And ever since then, there's been this ongoing duel between God's people, the Israelites, and the Agagites, or the Amalekites. So in other words, Haman... This new guy who just appeared and got a promotion in chapter 3, he is one of the worst enemies of God's people. He's a baddie. Now, there's been a lot of ambiguity in the book of Esther, but when he walks on the scene, the music comes on, evil music, the screen goes dark, he's a baddie. And he will not rest until God's people are completely destroyed. This is almost right like back at the Exodus when the Amalekites tried to completely wipe out the Israelites. Chapter, uh, verse 6 of chapter 3. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, that's the Israelites, the Jews, he, Haman, 
scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman wants to kill all the Jews. And this fellow with this attitude has just been promoted to the highest position in the land. Can you see the problem? He makes his first move in verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Haman casts a pur, it's like throwing dice, to pick a date. The date that he is picking is the date, the one day on which he will kill all the Jews. He's a sneaky character, though. He wants to kill the Jews because they are his personal enemies. This is his family's vendetta against the Jewish people. But he makes it sound like he's doing King Xerxes a favour. Because, remember, you tell King Xerxes what he wants to hear, and Haman makes this sound like a great plan for King Xerxes. Verse 8. Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed and scattered among all the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interests to tolerate them. See, Haman makes it sound like he's doing a favour for King Xerxes. Not only that, Haman is so generous that he offers to put up some of his own money to help King Xerxes get rid of these people. Verse 9, If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who will carry out this business. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. The signet ring is like the ring that the king would use to seal his royal orders. It's like his signature or his pin number. He has just given Haman full authority to kill all the Jews. And then down in verse 13, the orders are given, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old women and little children. And so the full army of King Xerxes, the most powerful man in the world, is about to be unleashed against the Jews. And remember, King Xerxes rules 127 provinces from India to Kush. Every Jew in existence will be wiped out. At this point, God's people are completely powerless. Meanwhile, though, Esther has no idea what's going on because she's undercover. No one knows that she's a Jew. This is all going on out there and she's in King Xerxes' palace. So she's standing up in the palace looking down at her uncle Mordecai out there and he is basically bawling his eyes out. He's completely sad. He's in ashes and sackcloth. So she sends someone out to find out what's wrong with her uncle. Why is he so sad? Esther chapter 4 now and verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hadak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. What's wrong with my uncle? What's wrong with the Jews? So she sends out this fellow to find out, and she finds out. 
She finds out about Haman and his plan to kill all the Jews. But with the reply, she gets more than she bargained for. Because the message comes back to Esther and her uncle Mordecai wants her to help out. Verse 8, he also gave, this is um, Mordecai giving it to the messenger, he also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to urge her to go into the king's presence and to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Mordecai wants Esther to go to King Xerxes, she's the queen, remember, King Xerxes is the king, and ask him to change his mind. Now, just think back one week. What happened to the last queen who got in King Xerxes' way? She's not queen anymore. That's why Esther was picked to be queen, because she does whatever she's told. And she's being told to go into King Xerxes? I remember when I was in year six, I was told to go into the school principal and tell him that I had stolen rubber bands from the art teacher. I was packing it. I was completely scared, and rightly so. I ended up with the cane. That is nothing compared with fronting up to King Xerxes, the most powerful man in the land who's a complete control freak. He loses his temper just like that. And what's more, we find out in chapter 4 that he hasn't invited Esther into his presence for 30 days. It seems she's out of favour. What will she do? This is a dark hour for Esther. It's a completely hopeless situation. King Xerxes doesn't even know that she's a Jew. She's been lying to him up to this point. Will she go before the king and speak on behalf of her people? Or will she do what she's done so far in the book of Esther and keep her head down and hide? Maybe she'll survive, but all the Jews will be killed. Well, in verse 10, we find out Esther's reply, and it is disappointing. Then she instructed him, that's the messenger, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. That's her reply to Mordecai. She's not going to do it. She's too scared. So far, Esther has done everything her uncle has asked of her, but not here. When it will cost her her life, she won't do it. And what's more, according to Esther, Mordecai should know this. Mordecai shouldn't ask her to do this. Look at verse 10. All the king's officials and all the people of the royal provinces know. See, Mordecai, you know what will happen to me if I go to the king. I'll be killed. How can you ask me to do this? So it seems Esther is not a heroine at all. In fact, this is what I think chapter 1 and 2 have prepared us for. This fits in with everything we've seen of Esther so far. She has done just what she needs to say to stay out of trouble. But her uncle Mordecai has more confidence in Esther than that. He doesn't leave it there. 
he sends her another message. He appeals to her in his reply at two levels. Firstly, he appeals to her selfishness. Esther, if you keep your mouth shut, you're not going to escape. Verse 13, he sent back this answer. Do you think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? That's crazy thinking, Esther. He appeals to her selfishness, but then he appeals to something bigger as well. He appeals to what God is doing in all this. Verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Now, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. We saw that last week. But Mordecai here knows that God is at work behind the scenes. Mordecai would have known back in Genesis 12 that God promised that he would always be with his people and he would never allow his people to be destroyed. And so whether it's through Esther or whether it's through someone else, Mordecai knows that God will rescue his people. He just doesn't know how. He knows that something good will come of this and he's hoping that's why Esther became queen. And in response to that reminder that God is in control and he will save his people, for the first time in the book of Esther, Esther does something that is clearly right. In this darkest of situations, Esther puts her trust in God. And as we've seen, this is not the faith of some super good woman who always gets it right. This is a weak, fallible girl trusting God. And that's what faith is. Verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. In other words, pray. And I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther will do what is right, even if it costs her her life. Why? For her people. Esther will lay down her life for her people. What happens to Esther? We'll find out next week. It's a cliffhanger. <laughs> Got to come back. But this is a great place, I think, at the end of chapter 4 to stop and pause and think about how Esther points us to Jesus. Because Esther reminds us of another person who needed to trust God in the darkest of hours. Another person who was willing to give his life to save his people. But unlike Esther, when the plotting of his enemies was about to succeed, Jesus didn't hesitate. Jesus didn't need to be talked into it. Jesus didn't try and find a way out. Jesus willingly gave his life for his people. In fact, on the night before he died, this was Jesus' prayer to his father. Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus' death was the last step in a plan 
to rescue God's people, a plan that he and his father knew about before the creation of the world, where in his death, Jesus would take on the sin of his people, the wrong of his people, the guilt of his people, the anger of God against everything that his people had done wrong. And in that darkest of hours, as Jesus faced the wrath of God ahead of him, Jesus didn't say no. Jesus said, I will do whatever you want me to do. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And he did. Jesus gave his life on the cross to rescue his people. It's the cross that shows us the most about who Jesus is. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes this, The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Jesus loved me. Jesus gave his life for me. That's what Jesus is really like. And if you want to know what Jesus thinks of you, look to the cross. If you feel at times like no one loves to you, not true. Look to the cross. You feel like at times like you don't deserve Jesus' love? Well, that's true. You don't deserve it, but Jesus loves you anyway. Look at the cross. Last week we were thinking about the God who is in control of all situations, in charge of everything, even when life is out of control. But knowing that God is in control is only half of the comfort, isn't it? We also need to know that he's good. We also need to know that he loves us. Well, he does. And if you want to be sure of that, then look to the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all the drama in the book of Esther. It really is a great story. And thank you that when your people were in such a grave danger, about to be annihilated, you raised up a saviour for them in the person of Esther. And Father, thank you that although she was weak and fallible, you were able to use her, as we'll see next week, to rescue your people. Father, thank you that you are a God who saves Thank you that you are a God who loves. And Father, thank you that nothing can separate us from your love that is in Jesus. Please help us to marvel and rejoice at that and to be sure of your love for us. Amen.